Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, uh, November the 24th, 2023, the day after Thanksgiving. Just an interesting show with Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic of the Los Angeles Times, with her recommendations for books for Christmas. One of the books she suggested was a, a shit book by David Gran, a best selling writer. The Wager, it's already been turned into a film, I think, with DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese to go alongside. Um, uh, his book, The Killers of the Flower Moon, which uh, Scorsese has just made a, a powerful movie about. Um, Gran, of course, the book, uh, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder, is a book about ships. And we're continuing that theme now with my guest, who has become quite an expert, Stephen Ujifuza, a historian who's has three books out, all about ships. His first book, many of you be familiar, A Man and His Ship, America's Greatest Naval Architect, and his quest to build the SS United States, did very well. His second book, Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship, uh, came out in 2018, also very well-reviewed and selling well. And today, or this week, his new book is out, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business Rivalry and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I, another ship book, a book also about immigration and the European uh, problem uh, in, in, in Russia, at least, of European Jewry and their quest to come to America by ship. Stephen is joining us from just outside Boston. near the sea, Stephen? Uh, no, we live, uh, I, we're my sister-in-law's near Worcester, Massachusetts, so not near the sea. So what is it about ships and the sea that, um, shall, we, shall we say, drives or perhaps sails your ship? Why have you written these three books all about uh, the sea and ships? Do you have any kind of naval background or is it just a passion? Uh, I do not have a naval background. I can uh, knock around in the sunfish pretty well. Uh, that's something I picked up at summer camp. And have been on a few sailing trips, but uh, my interest stems from childhood. When I was a very young child, my grandmother told me the story of the Titanic uh, when I was around six years old, and that sort of sparked my interest not just in ships but in history in general. And uh, I studied history at Harvard uh, with an interest in the built environment and American history, but I'd always just been captivated by ships as examples of national engineering prowess of objects that transport people on important voyages. And oddly enough, this book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, brought me back to that story that my grandmother told me when I was little, because she told me the story of the Strauss couple on the Titanic. They were uh, the um, Isidore and Ida Strauss were German Jews who uh, were the, the largest shareholders of Macy's department store, an immigrant success story. And they perished on the ship. Uh, because they both perished because Ida refused to leave her husband's side. And she uh, went, she died uh, refusing to be separated from her husband. And that made them martyrs in the Jewish community in New York and America at the time. And I sort of wondered why my grandmother, who was born in 1916, she's since passed away, why that story resonated with her. And it turns out that the sinking of the Titanic 
and immigration and what that meant meant a huge deal to the um, Jewish community and the Strausses were seen as martyrs. And I began digging more into the story of the Titanic, of shipping and immigration. And my grandmother was the daughter of Russian Jewish immigrants who came over in the 1890s. Her father came over from modern day Belarus with nothing, uh, fleeing pogroms, fleeing uh, conscription from the, in the czar's army. And I began digging into that aspect of my family history, and hence that's what caused the third book to happen. So it was something that began as a family origin story, going back to my own interest in history. And then I began realizing why did uh, nearly 2 million Jews from 1881 to 1914 drop everything that they were familiar with, left family and friends, and made this dangerous journey uh, all the way to, the, to another continent? Uh, nothing could be more different than uh, the Pale of Settlement in southern Russia, modern-day Soviet Russia, or modern-day Russia, and America. That takes a lot of guts to drop everything you know that's familiar. Must take a lot of things such as persecution and and fear of being tortured or killed or by the Cossacks or by the Tsar's army. And I began looking into what were the origins of Russian anti-Semitism. Why did it start there? And that's what actually started, that's what really got me going on this book, was a Jewish origin story combined with shipping. Yeah, you can't get further from the sea and from shipping than the Russian persecution of Jews in late 19th century uh, Russia. Was there something different about that persecution? What changed? I mean, Russia, of course, has a long history of anti-Semitism. Uh, the Jews had been in that part of the world for many centuries. Why did ultimately this result in this huge immigration or emigration of, of Russian and Belarusian, Ukrainian Jews from, from, uh, from the Russian Empire to the United States and, of course, to other countries as well, including the United Kingdom? Russia was an outlier in the late 19th century in Europe because uh, you had starting in the 1840s and 1850s, most European countries were liberalizing their attitudes towards Jews. Most likely, most commonly, um, I mean, most notably uh, Germany, which unified in 1871. Austria-Hungary uh, liberated Jews and gave them full civil rights, leading to a immense flowering of Jewish life and culture in Vienna. Uh, France, uh, under the uh, New Republic government of the 1870s, uh, did the same thing. And there was the nasty Dreyfus affair in which a Jewish-French army officer was wrongly um, convicted of spying. Great Britain uh, made tremendous strides under the reign of Queen Victoria. Uh, you had Lord Rothschild, who was the first practicing Jewish member of, uh, of Parliament. Uh, the Rothschilds especially... Uh, became hugely influential in financing uh, the European expansion. Russia was weird in that Russia basically backpedaled from this liberalization. And in 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by an anarchist uh, group. And his successor, the Tsar Alexander III, decided that uh, this was an example. His father had liberated the serfs in 1861 and tried to enact several liberalizing reforms, which were slowly moving Russia towards a constitutional monarchy. Tsar Alexander III said, this has all been wrong. My father made a mistake. He enabled these people. We need to clamp down and 
go back to autocracy. We need to we need to cement the supremacy of the Russian Orthodox Church. And one of his closest advisors said, the ideal situation for Russia would be if one third of our country's four million Jews convert, one third immigrate, and the other third just disappear. And so state-sponsored anti-Semitism became policy under the last two czars, Alexander III and his son, Nicholas II. Uh, this became, and one tool they used was military conscription, in which young boys, as young as nine or 10 years old, were taken away from their families, uh, drafted the army, used as cannon fodder for the Tsar's many wars, forced to convert to orthodoxy. And if they survived, they'd come back home and they would not recognize their, their, um, their native, their original culture. So, and then you also had pogroms, uh, basically government sanctioned persecution of, and rape, murder, torture of Jews by mobs uh, that would take place throughout Russia. Uh, the police would often stand by, would often participate in this. So you had just this feeling of like, this place is no longer safe for us to be in. Uh, some Jews did well in Russia. They managed to make it into the middle class, but they did not have full citizen rights. So most Jews in Russia were poor. They were tanners, blacksmiths, tradesmen, the, like the proverbial Tevye, the milkman, and they realize there's no upward mobility. We can't go, we can't rise in society. We'll never be fully part of society. Uh, countries such as Germany and Austria-Hungary did not want to take these people. So their only choice they had was to get to America. And that meant a dangerous, long, and expensive journey to get to the great ports of Northern Europe, such as Bremen, Hamburg, Liverpool, Antwerp. And this was a journey that we don't know about all that much in this country, in America. We think of immigrants arriving at the Statue of Liberty and going through Ellis Island. But there's a whole other two or 3,000 mile journey that these people had to take. We are speaking with Stephen Ujifusa, the author of The Last Ships from Hamburg, an intriguing new history book about ships and immigration, the race to save Russian Jews on the eve of the First World War. It's, it's worth noting, Stephen, particularly given the, the, the current crisis in Gaza, Israel, that Zionism hadn't even been born yet. So the idea of going to Israel was, for the vast majority of Russian Jews, unthinkable, wasn't it? It was not even seen as really an option. I mean, there are some people like Chaim Weizmann, who is a Russian Jew who spent most of his life in Germany, who felt that this whole liberalization was a, a mirage. And uh, America at the time had a pretty open immigration policy from the time of the Civil War up until the early 20s. So that was the most logical destination. And uh, Jacob Schiff, who was uh, probably the leading American Jew from the 1870s to his death in 1920, he was uh, an investment banker who had built his fortune as financier to the Pennsylvania Railroad, to the Rockefellers, he used his vast wealth to encourage Jews to come here, setting up a whole network of charities such as the Henry Street Settlement House, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And his goal was to make America the promised land. And the person, the other German Jew who made this happen was a native of Hamburg named Albert Ballen, who was the general director of the Hamburg America line, which became the largest and most profitable shipping line in the world 
uh, bigger than Cunard or White Star or any of its British rivals. And Albert Ballum built his company's business on the immigrant trade, uh, carrying steerage passengers, 2,000 people pushed to the bottom of these big ocean liners uh, at 25 bucks a head. And he set up this intricate transportation network that from the Russian Empire. He basically, he and his, his company basically took over the border control stations between uh, Poland, uh, the Ruffin, Russian province of Poland and Germany that allowed not just Jews, but immigrants in general to from the Russian Empire to pass through Germany and end up on his ships in Hamburg. So let's just remind ourselves, this was, of course, pre-Holocaust European Jewry. How many Jews were there living in the Russian Empire? Uh, there, were, there were four million Jews uh, living in the Russian Empire. Which would have included modern Ukraine, uh, Eastern Poland. Yes. Uh, and, and the Baltics as well. Exactly, yes. And most Jews were confined to a southern area of, of the Russian Empire, mostly Ukraine and Belarus, known as the Pale of Settlement. They were legally supposed to uh, confine to that area. There are a few exceptions. Uh, there were many, many in Poland as well. But uh, almost half decided to get out during this time. Which is an astonishing number, given, as you suggest, the logistical, the financial, perhaps even the existential challenges involved with uh, emigration and immigration. Oh, yeah, you had to. Uh, the journey was very expensive. Most um, average Jews could barely afford the journey. They would have to sell everything they knew to get or they had to pay for the train fare, to pay for the steamship fare. Uh, Jews tended to travel as families if they could. Uh, other groups who emigrated to America, such as Italians, Southern Italians, often the male would go and bring the family over, or he would come back, bring some money, and take his earnings and stay in Italy. For these Russian Jews, the idea of returning back was just not an option, which is why the fumigation centers, the checkpoints along the, the border, the immigration village that Albert Ballin's Hamburg America Line set up, which had fumigation facilities. And what does that mean? Facilities. It sounds rather, uh, it sounds rather dire, fumigation centers. Yeah, the biggest concern for um, these immigrants was being denied admission because they had some sort of communicable disease, such as cholera or smallpox or trachoma, which is a, a dreaded eye disease. Anyone that was found to have any of these diseases when they arrived at Ellis Island or any of the other immigration stations in uh, America would be automatically turned away. And, and when you say turned away, sent back on the same ship? Sent back. They were forced to go back, and the steamship company would be forced to uh, pay their fare to go back. Okay, so it's and rather like the airlines. The responsibility was on the, the steamship company to make sure that everyone traveling to the United States would be allowed into the country. Yes, yes. And how much documentation did they require? Uh, that, was the, that was the tough part. Many of them did not have um, passports. They had to, uh, a lot of them, you just had to, once again, this was a relatively uh, unrestricted immigration at the time. Uh, but pretty much if you wanted to get on a ship to Hamburg, all you'd pretty much need or get on a ship to America, you needed a certain amount of money and you needed proof that you were not going to be 
a public charge, and later immigration laws were put in starting in the mid 1900s by the Theodore Roosevelt administration saying you can't be a prostitute, you can't be an anarchist, things like that. Prostitute and anarchist, things like that. What are other things like that? Uh, you mean other other? Uh, no, I'm teasing you. I mean, there's a, oh. <laughs> to be quite a significant difference between being a prostitute and being an anarchist. We are speaking with Stephen Ujifuza, the author of an intriguing new book, "The Last Ships from Hamburg: Business Rivalry and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War One." Take a short break. I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for bringing us this show. Uh, I've been very generous in their support for Keenon. We are going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Stephen to talk ex to talk about these last ships, what they were, and how many people they transported from Russia to the United States in the 20 years before the First World War. So we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Uh, we are speaking with the distinguished naval historian, or the historian of boats, at least, of um, of sailing of one kind or another, Stephen Ujifuza, whose new book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, deals with the race to save Russia's Jews on the eve of World War One. Stephen, before the break, we talked about those Jews. What about the American, and, and you touched on this earlier, the American financiers, the entrepreneurs who owned these boats and organized the transportation, were they mostly Jewish themselves? No, they were not, actually. Albert Ballin, who was the managing director of the Hamburg America line, was kind of an anomaly. He had he had, was born very poor in Hamburg in 1857. And by the time he was in his 30s and 40s, he had risen to become the head of one of Germany's preeminent uh, businesses and corporations. He always sort of felt um, on one hand, no matter how successful he came, he was quote unquote friends with the Kaiser, but he always felt kind of unsettled in a way. He, he, he always felt that he was dealing with anti-Semitism at a very subtle level uh, whenever he was sitting with these uh, powerful Germans, especially uh, nobles and people in the foreign office. Uh, but on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the biggest financier involved in the transatlantic trade was J.P. Morgan who definitely was not Jewish, J.P. Morgan uh, wanted to do what he did for railroads and sugar and rubber consolidation to the steamship industry. And the immigration business was the most lucrative part of that business. So what he tried to do starting in the 1890s and early 1900s was to buy up every single transatlantic line he could and consolidate it into a monster trust, a monopoly, just like a railroad. Uh, unfortunately, that was his one failure because he could not get his hands on either the Cunard line, which was Britain's preeminent line, or the Hamburg America line or the North German Lord line. And not having control of especially the German lines, which had the closest uh, access to this mass immigration from the Russian Empire, he couldn't make his trust pay. In fact, Albert Ballin was probably one of the few people 
able to beat JP Morgan and not sell out. And uh, it drove Morgan crazy. So it was big business. I mean, this, this was not just some like a cruise, you know, a cr pleasure cruise business. The meat and potatoes of the business was steerage and immigration. Now, JP Morgan himself was not exactly a friend of the immigrants. He was known as kind of a as an anti-Semite, his son, J.P. Morgan Jr., who took over him was even worse. But I think, and he never hired Jews at his banks or his businesses. But he's just felt that this was something he could not pass up, uh, was to try to monopolize the transatlantic business. And let's just remind ourselves of Hamburg. That the, the book is called The Last Ships from Hamburg. Hamburg remains a port, but it was a much more dominant port at the end of the 19th century, wasn't it? It was. It was actually a more active port than New York City uh, because you had uh, all these goods from the surgeon, rising German Empire coming out. You had uh, not just from Germany the goods were coming in and out, but you also had it was a port for a lot of Northern Europe. So it was extremely well positioned. And so Hamburg had a long tradition of being a cosmopolitan shipping, banking uh, city, uh, very different culturally than the capital of Berlin. How did the Jews, the Russian Jews, get to Hamburg? Did they sail or did they get there by railroad or by on foot? They mostly got there by railroads. The tricky part was to uh, first get to the railroad station. A lot of these Jews came from very small towns known as shtetls that did not have direct access to railroads. The first leg of journey would often be in a horse and cart. Uh, horse and wagon where they would wave goodbye to their families. In fact, that was one of my great grandmother's memories was waving goodbye to her sisters, uh, wondering if she'd ever see them again. I mean, that was the heartrending part was knowing you may never see your family again. But this was the choice. They would then find their way to the railroad station and take the train to a border town. And then they'd have to go through the border checkpoints. Sometimes they would go around the check the checkpoints and take a hire a boatman or someone to take them across, and that was often extremely dangerous. Other times they would go through the, these border control stations, and there would be these camps on on both sides of the border uh, where people would wait to go in and go out. And once they were across, if they did make it across, then they would catch the train to Hamburg or Bremen, or and they would all these trains from the Russian Empire and also some from Austria Hungary would converge at this. Uh, checkpoint outside of Berlin, of Berlin, where they would be checked for disease, their clothes and themselves would be fumigated, and then they would get back on these sealed trains and they'd end up at the ports of, of mostly Hamburg, and they would wait at what was an immigrant village outside the city center of Hamburg for up to two weeks. This immigrant village built by Albert Ballon had kosher kitchens, a synagogue, a church, dormitories, and they would wait there for up to two weeks, and then they would get on a ferry boat that would take them to the port of Cuxhaven, just outside of Hamburg, where the big passenger steamers were waiting to take on their passengers. There's, a, I guess, an eerie irony, a paradox, uh, when you compare the journeys of these European Jews on German railroads, which enabled them to come to America, versus... 40 years later, when they were shipped to the concentration camps, did, did that ever occur to you that one was a journey to freedom and one to their death? It's it's a very strange uh, and very eerie um, 
echoing in terms of being put on these sealed trains, one to freedom and one to to death. And these, you know, these Jews were not allowed out. They couldn't when the, the train wouldn't stop at any other stop. The German government did not want these refugees settling in. I ironically talking about sealed trains, of course, the, the most famous sealed train of all was one going the other way during World War One, which uh, which contained uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who launched the Russian Revolution, which changed the whole history of the 20th century. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a uh, the German government's idea was to cause some cause some uh, disruption in their in their military enemy. It caused a lot more than just disruption. The subtitle of the book is "Business Rivalry and the Race to Save Russian Jews on the Age of uh, on the Eve of World War One." You've talked about the business rivalry, but is it really fair to describe this as a race to save Russian Jews? I mean, these people may have been persecuted, but there was no Holocaust. There was no organized attempt to wipe these people out. Had they well, stayed and had had the Nazis or had Hitler not come to power, then presumably this part of the world would still be inhabited by millions of Jews. Not in the minds of, uh, of people like Jacob Schiff, the, who was the major philanthropist behind this effort to get Jews to come here. He considered, and a lot of Jews felt this way at the time, that the biggest enemy of the Jewish people was not Kaiser Wilhelm II. Germany was actually seen as relatively good uh, for Jews. Jacob Schiff always felt loyal to Germany. That cost him dearly during World War I as an American citizen. He felt if there was going to be a Holocaust that was going to go happen to the Jews, it was happening right then in Russia. And they were trapped. And Schiff also saw this as a race because he saw by the late um, 1900s, early 1910s, that there was growing public sentiment in America that immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe were not, could not be assimilated. There was this rise of eugenics and scientific racism promulgated by groups such as the Immigration Restriction League. This started off as an elite movement among uh, academia and high society, but by the 1910s it had spread to the broader political mainstream. And so there was increasing talk that we need to limit, severely limit uh, the arrival of Eastern and Southern European Jews. And there's also this fear that if should a war break out, and Albert Ballin was terrified of this, that would destroy the immigration business and that would trap Jews in Russia and, uh, and in Europe in general. So in many ways, it was a race for people to get out. Before 19, in the, in the yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I, I wasn't really questioning the issue of the race, when you call it a race, it's saving Russia's mm -hmm. Jews. I, I'm not suggesting that they had a particularly easy life in Russia, but it's a rather different race, shall we say, to the one in 1938, 1939, which quite literally was an attempt to save European Jewry. Most of the mm -hmm. Jews who tried to get out didn't and died. Mm -hmm. um, the, the the wealth culturally, economically, um, politically, even of, of of these people in terms of their contribution to American life is astonishing. Everybody from the families of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Estee Lauder, George Gershwin, uh, uh, Irving Berlin, Lauren Bacall, the Marx Brothers. Uh, Al Jolson, Sam Goldwyn, the whole history of the American movie industry in Hollywood perhaps 
ended up on those boats. How would you summarize um, the contribution to America of this generation of Russian Jews who between the 1880s and uh, 1914 escaped from Russia to America? I think that it was it was a they felt very grateful for this country. I mean, there are people like Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist who wanted to use America as a base to spread you know, what she saw as a better future, but was ultimately revolution. But then you also had uh, people like Irving Berlin, who as a five or six year old stood on the deck of a ship and saw the Statue of Liberty. And he rose from desperate poverty to be America's master songwriter. Uh, he uh, set to music the uh, poem by Emma Lazarus, um, uh, uh, The Great Colossus, about uh, I lift my life beside the golden door. He also wrote God Bless America. So I think that they really, most American Jews, uh, the first generation that got here was very hard. They worked in extremely, they worked in sweatshops, they barely made a living, but it was all to give their children and grandchildren a better life. And you know, not all of them made it. A lot of them uh, uh, died in poverty, but those that did make it, especially the second and third generation, they realized that, especially after the 1930s, that if we didn't make that journey, if my family didn't make that journey, we wouldn't be here. But I think Irving Berlin was a wonderful example of someone who became went from the immigrant to the ultimate American, quote unquote, someone who loved America through his music. Lauren Bacall, who I featured in my book, she uh, she understood, she grew up very close to her grandmother who immigrated, and she saw the, the hardship that it wrought on her grandmother. Her grandfather, Max, or, who immigrated from uh, Romania, in his 50s, he had worked as a push, I mean, he had started off as a pushcart peddler, and that was such a horrible traumatic way to make a living he eventually moved on to be own a candy store but the family just that trauma of poverty they lauren bacall said that the mention of push cart in her family brought shutters and her grandfather in his 50s i believe during the great depression he was just so worn out from his hard life he she said he just went to the movies and died came home and died so i think a lot of the second and third generation remember that trauma my grandmother uh, would also say that she she said of her father, he every Fourth of July he would uh, make a big ceremony of displaying the American flag on the front of their townhouse in Brooklyn, and he would never ever ever talk about the old world. That's one. Th I asked my grandmother, "What did they ever say about Russia?" And my grandmother said that was a forbidden topic. Stephen, um, you mentioned uh, Emma Goldman, who of course eventually got sent back by J. Edgar Hoover after the First World War when in the Wilson administration there was a, a clampdown on, on pacifism and left-wing organization. I know your book also deals with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory uh, strike and the political violence in America during and after the First World War. To what extent were this generation of Russian Jews divided by their politics between classic immigrants simply seeking a better life and political idealists of one kind or another, particularly anarchists, socialists, even communists? That's a very good question. There was a very strong division. Uh, you did have 
um, a lot of you know, most immigrants who came over, they wanted to uh, make a living for their kids and worked. A lot of them worked as small business owners. They worked in sweatshops, which was horrible conditions. Uh, often whole families would be crammed together in a two bedroom, a two room apartment making cigars and doing piecework for factories and unventilated rooms. But you did have um, a significant contingent of people who are socialists, social democrats, um, you know, some, some anarchists who came out of Russia who felt that like we couldn't uh, preach what we wanted in Russia, so we'll come to America and try to change the world that way. And you had this very strong division too between uh, practicing Jews, many of most of whom were Orthodox Jews, uh, and religion was their focus. And then you had a you know, not insignificant chunk of secular, non-practicing Jews, who for whom socialism and communism had become sort of a a a a, a, a view of to make a better world, and that raised a lot of alarm bells for people in America. Jacob Schiff uh, was a uh, as a, as a as a capitalist, as one of the leading bankers in the United States, as well as one of the leading the leading Jewish philanthropist was alarmed by this and did not want people to think, well, all Jews are communists or all Jews are anarchists. Uh, he wanted to make most Jews into kind of reflections of himself, good, steady, bourgeois, middle, upper middle class members of society. But yeah, people on the immigration side, anti-immigration side would really amplify and use people like Emma Goldman saying, this is why we can't have pe these people coming here. And that's what fueled the immigration restriction acts of uh, the early 20s that ultimately stopped Jewish immigration as well as Italian and Southern European immigration. So it was it was a uh, it was it was a tension. But um, most Jews who came here just wanted to make a better life for their families. Finally, Stephen, some things don't change 100 years, more than 100 years after your story ends. Uh, immigration remains, or emigration, immigration remains enormously controversial in Europe, of course. Many immigrants or emigrants from the Middle East, from the Syrian civil war, from Afghanistan, uh, from North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa are desperate to get to Europe. Many lose their lives attempting to get there. Many exploited by the, uh, the businessmen, the entrepreneurs organized in the smuggling. And of course, in America, the same is true in Central, Central America and the many tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Central Americans seeking still to get into the United States. What does your book, The Last Ship from Hamburg, what does that tell us about uh, the today's struggle, both uh, of immigrants trying to get to Europe and the United States and nativists, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, or, or, or Wilder in, um, in, uh, in, in Holland, who's just been elected to office, many East European leaders who are overtly hostile to any kind of immigration, particularly of people of different races or religions, which the Jews were, of course, uh, in America at the time of your story. Well, I think that it, it comes down to hope for your, if you're an immigrant trying to, uh, immigrants then, immigrant now, most immigrants just want a better life for their themselves, but most importantly for their children. And if there's a better, if there's a, a country with a form of government that offers 
uh, equality under the law uh, offers protection from exploitation, from being exploited. I mean, no country is perfect. I mean, America is far from perfect. But I think what America offered, and this is what Jacob Schiff saw as America being the promised land for the Jews, was we have the Constitution. We fought the Civil War. We, um, slavery was uh, was abolished after a brutal war. He said that the, that was the promise of America, was this, if not always the, the guarantee, the promise of America. And I think that that's what is guiding most immigration is you go from places that do not have uh, rule of law, that have government of fear and exploitation, to a country that at least has the promise of uh, of equality and the ability to raise your family in peace and practice the religion that you want in peace. And I think we really have to take that into consideration. And I think that this country, which has its many flaws and it has uh, is far from perfect, at least at two crucial events, the founding and during the Civil War offered that promise versus the alternatives, which for most of human history have been uh, absolute monarchy, dynastic monarchy, dictatorships. Uh, and uh, that's the scary thing is that if that form of government uh, disappears and we revert back to dictatorships or dynastic uh uh, monarchy, uh, then a lot of hope is lost, that it is government by oppression and fear. And one final question. There's always a final question, Stephen, but this is the final final. You noted that, I think it was your great-grandmother had to say goodbye to her sisters or brothers or rest of the family. Some chose to leave, some didn't, some stayed. And of course, as you note, the Russian Jews who stayed eventually, most of them were, were killed under the Nazis, and perhaps Cossacks or uh, other anti-Semitic forces. Did you conclude in your research that uh, of the, the sister who left versus the, the brother or sister who stayed, that these are different types of people? I've always assumed, perhaps anecdotally, that the person who chooses to leave is braver, more innovative, more adventurous, and perhaps ultimately more of an asset to the country that they're choosing to go through whether it's Africans now choosing to risk their lives coming to Europe or Central Americans coming to America, that they themselves have uh, some sort of heroic quality in the same way as many of the Jews fleeing the Russian pogroms did at the end of the 19th, early 20th century? I, 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 that's a very tough question. I think that it takes, it's a combination of temperament and circumstance. Sometimes you kiss, you, people couldn't leave their villages because they had family members that were unable to leave and they couldn't do that. Um, for some, it was a financial issue. Uh, but yeah, I think thinking of it from my own standpoint, and I have a wife and two children, the ability just to say, situate things are here so bad, I got to get out of here by any means necessary and fling myself into the great unknown. I mean, that does take a tremendous amount of bravery. Should ever things ever end up like they, if America was to turn into Imperial Russia, uh, and people were being persecuted and whatnot, it would take a lot for me and my my wife and kids to say we need to get out of here. You just walk away from everything. It's it's it, it's it does take a certain amount of bravery and ability to cast yourself out of the unknown. And 
the old saying, America's streets are paved with gold, I think was a way of sort of saying, of justifying to yourself that there is hope at the end of this terrible journey. The reality was that for a lot of people, those first years were terrible in America. They were very tough. But it is remarkable that within the first one or two generations, most American Jews or Jewish immigrants made it into the working or middle class. Some made it into even made it into the upper middle class. The most determining point, um, according to the Tenem Museum in New York, was whether or not dad survived or died. If dad survived, the family had a good chance of rising from the Lower East Side into working class or middle class respectability. If the dad died, that was disaster and could be very scary for the for the women and children.